Welcome, dear readers. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We're recording today from the Carol Shields Auditorium in the Millennium Library, which is within Treaty 1 territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Inanu, and Dakota peoples, and in the national homeland of the Red River Métis. Our drinking water comes from Shoal Lake 40 First Nation in Treaty 3 territory. In this episode, we will be discussing Empire of Wild by Sherry Demoline. I'm Dennis from the Idea Mill, and to the best of my knowledge, I have not grown a salt bone. Across the table from me is... I'm Toby. I'm an outreach librarian based out of here at Millennium Library, and um, I have nothing this month. I'm Mm. sorry. And across the table from me is... Hi, I'm Trevor. I'm the branch head at the Louis Riel Library, and I will always uh, think twice if I ever see a green wingback chair in the forest. Probably good advice. Even before. (laughs) A good book can carry me away from an ever-engine we wouldn't do this without you. Even if you're wandering the wilderness trapped in your own thoughts, we'd love to know what you think of the books we're reading. You can find our email address and all our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page. A side note, Millennium Library is undergoing some construction right now, a renovation, and you may hear some noises in the background. Hopefully they won't be too distracting. Hang around till the end of the episode to enjoy our favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. Toby's going to tell us about the author, after which Trevor will give us a summary of the book. But first, let's check in with the panel. How are you guys doing? Good. It's a beautiful fall afternoon. It's Rosh Hashanah. It's the Jewish New Year. Oh, Happy New Year. Yeah. Happy New Year. It is now 5,783. We'll be in the future. Yeah. Well, I mean, Jews started counting way before Jesus, so. It's good to have alternate numbering systems there. Yeah, totally. Are there any special things that you'll be doing? Well, I made a challah last night, and for Rosh Hashanah, you make it round. That's, um, there's a reason, but I don't know why. Um, and you also eat apples and honey to have a sweet new year. And um, I'm sure there's other things, but I'm not super Jewy, so I don't know those. But in about a week, there's Yom Kippur, which is a day of atonement, which always follows the new year where you atone for your sins from the previous year. But I don't participate in that one. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel better already. Yeah. I mean, just knowing that. I mean, fall seems like a nice time to have a, a new year, like with school going back and mm-hmm. the change in season. It, it seems more like a new year sometimes than like the December to January one does. Yeah. Well, you got the harvest going yeah, in, you know. Totally. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, 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 exactly. You know, I don't have anything to add to that. Thank you for though. I look, look, you, you're <laughs> looking, looking across at me yeah, yeah. <laughs> expectantly. Uh, and uh, all, all I know is that, you know, I. Uh, I'm just enjoying the, the beautiful blue skies uh, the last few days and uh, the warm weather and uh, the sweet sounds of drilling in the auditorium. Sweet sounds of drilling. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, let's jump on into the discussion about the author. Okay. Cherie Demoline was born July 2nd, 1975. She is from the Georgian Bay Métis Nation and storytelling was a big part of her family growing up. She liked to write from an early age. As a child, she shared a room with her grandmother, her mare, who would whisper, read Harlequins, and listen to fiddle music. Uh, Dimeline would keep her at night as she'd leave a light on to write. Her father was a chef and part-time magician, and they moved around a lot. 
At 15, she left school and went to Mexico with some friends. She was able to catch up upon getting home, but at 16, she got pregnant, and that was the end of school for her. After her son was born, she got a job at the Ontario Provincial Police Museum. Other jobs she's had include chief operating officer for the Tribal Council Investment Group of Manitoba, director of a women's resource center, and an editorial intern at Chatelaine. She always wrote. Um, At first, the only paying writing gig she could get was writing pornography. In 2005, she got an email that Thetis Books, which is the oldest Indigenous publishing house in Canada, was going to publish her first book. She got word to her mayor, who was in the hospital and actually died that night. Um, The dedication in the book, which is called Red Rooms, reads, I did it, Grandma. After Red Rooms, Dimmeline published another novel, The Girl Who Grew a Galaxy, and a collection of short stories. In 2017, she published The Marrow Thieves, which went on to win the Governor General's Award for English Language Children's Literature and the Kirkus Prize in the Young Adult category. It was also a finalist for Canada Reads. After winning all those awards, she had a bunch of editors courting her, and she chose Penguin Random House because she wanted to work with Anne Collins, who is an industry giant and has also worked with Eden Robinson. Empire of Wilds came next in 2019 and was published under a four-book deal. The second book in this deal is Hunting by Stars, which is a sequel to The Marrow Thieves. She had not planned to write a sequel, but the demand was high. There were petitions and letters. She was booed when dismissing the idea at events, and someone even created an Instagram account for the main character. In addition to all of the above, she was the first writer-in-residence for Aboriginal Literature at Toronto Public Library. She is now the managing editor at Thetis Books and a mentor for the MFA Creative Writing Program at the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe. She has three kids and a pet python named Hermes. And now I will give a brief synopsis of Empire of Wild. Brokenhearted Joan has been searching for her husband Victor for almost a year, ever since he went missing on the night they had their first serious argument. One terrible hungover morning in a Walmart parking lot in a little town near Georgian Bay, she is drawn to a revival tent where the local Métis have been flocking to hear a charismatic preacher named Eugene Wolfe. By the time she staggers into the tent, the service is over, but as she is about to leave, she hears an unmistakable voice. She turns... And there Victor is. Same face, same eyes, same hands. But his hair is short, and he's wearing a suit, and he doesn't recognize her at all. No, he insists, no, she's the one suffering a delusion. He's the Reverend Wolf, and his only mission is to bring his people to Jesus. Except that, as Joan soon discovers, that's not all the enigmatic wolf is doing. With only the help of a Jean, a foul-moused euchre shark with the knowledge of the old ways, and her odd, Johnny-cash-loving 12-year-old nephew, Zeus, Joan has to find a way to remind the reverent wolf of who he really is. Well, if he really is, Victor. Her life, and the life of everyone she loves, depends on it. So how did you guys find this one? I, you know, I would say that the story, if I, if I had to describe it in one word, it was relentless. Mm-hmm. Relentless. It, I felt not so much that I had read it, but I survived it, <laughs> if I can put it that way. Okay. It's hard to talk about books that you're just so-so about, you know? Like, if I'm really into a book, I feel like I have a lot to say about it. And if I don't really like a book, then I have a lot to say about it. But when a book is just kind of middle of the road, um, it's hard to articulate why it's middle of the road and also to say anything about it. I mean, I have a lot of notes here. Like, I, I mean, I think there's a really strong Eden Robinson influence here. It's undisputable, the, the similarities between this book 
in a lot of what Eden Robinson writes. I think Joan is a really interesting character. I thought like I thought this book was pretty horny and I was really <laughs> interested in in that. Um so we could go in like in any of those directions if any of those things jumped out for either of you. I wasn't sure what to expect going into this one. And uh I had a very stressful month this month and I don't normally read a lot when I'm under stress. So I was a little worried I wouldn't actually finish the book this month, and I started it like last week, which was the most stressful week of the month. But I found this book very compelling in the sense that uh, it held my interest throughout. I was always kind of wondering what was going to happen next because the flow of it wasn't quite what I expected. And uh, I managed to finish it within the week quite well, which surprised me a bit because nothing about it grabbed me specifically. Uh, I found her writing style to be unadorned, very straightforward, which I like in a writer. You don't get distracted the way you do with like Carol Shields or, or Miriam Taves with a especially clever phrase or wording or anything like that. But it just lets you carry the story forward. And uh, yeah, it just carried me through. So I really like that. It flowed easily. And, uh, and I enjoyed the story because it was not what I was expecting when I went in, into it. Yeah, so I think I rated a little higher than you do. But <laughs> it's interesting you use the word unadorned for the writing because I, I know I think I know what you're you're getting at that it's it feels like a very sort of plot driven story, like this happens and then this happens. But in spite of that, I did find not so I wouldn't say throughout the book, but at certain unexpected moments, there were these beautiful little sort of descriptions that were just there, almost like as if you just came across something on a path that was that was just something you just wanted to take in. And one example of that was when Zeus is going to see Joan right after they discover that Mare is dead. And he goes to her house, but then he goes through the house and then out outside. So uh, the line I was thinking of is this one where it's outside. The house was surrounded by a coven of birches pointing branches to the sky, their thin fingers linked in supplication, bark white as new dentures. The creek that ran behind them whispered eight months out of the year, telling anyone who'd listen the best way to sit still. Mm-hmm. And when I read that, I was just like, ah, I, I've been in places like that where you find this little, you know, stream and, you know, the nature, the empire that the book, uh, you know, works on its own, its own systems and its own schedule. I found that passage in particular kind of just I just savored it and I don't have the other one that I was thinking of but there was one where it's talking about how the sun pulled the shadow across the barn and I was just thinking that that's such an interesting way of talking about a shadow growing long over an afternoon just being pulled across and so I found as the story went on and it kind of got more and more close to like a climax there was less of that it was just more plot than than thought uh, but uh <laughs> Um, yeah, that's that's all I got for that. Yeah, and I didn't mean to, by saying unadorned to say that there were no nice turns of phrase or anything like that. Uh, I don't mean to sound like I was diminishing the writing style, just that I found it didn't get in the way. Sometimes I find certain writing styles to slow me down because they're, you know, you have to process them more. And I found her writing that I could just flow through it and get through the story, which is what I like. So. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Well, no, I totally agree with you because I find sometimes, yeah, if you get stuck in the thorny kind of overuse of adverbs and things, I find that most writing benefits from being pared down. And mm-hmm. often, I guess, you know, you have a first draft and you go through and, and what is actually essential to the story and what are the minimal words I can use to convey what I want to convey. And I think she was good with that because there were moments when, you know, she was either on the trail of her husband and you just felt that you were right along there with her. There wasn't a lot of extraneous things to to get through. To So I found the pacing that way was interesting because it was, it was quick at some points, but then it would strangely ease off right when you wanted it like when she there were times when she would just kind of lose the lose the trail and have to go home and mm-hmm. it, it just seemed a little uneven that way the pacing of it i will say the pacing of this one was one of the things that kept me interested because it didn't follow the formula i guess i'm kind of used to because it was very quick from the beginning of the book and, you know, some backstory about the place where they lived and the things that had happened and then about Victor being missing. That was like a chapter. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, oh, I think this is Victor. And oh, now what do I do? And she's already, you know, heading out and trying to intercept him very quick into the book, which uh, was faster than I was expecting. And then there's all these roadblocks, but they aren't the roadblocks I would have expected either. Like going into it, I was expecting it to be a horror missing person there's a monster there you know but it didn't flow the way a monster story flows in my head all the confrontations were real confrontations but there weren't beasts jumping out of the dark all the time there you know uh there weren't knife fights or desperate escapes or anything like that but there was still the threat and the ominousness and the confusion so i I liked that it was different than what i was expecting and i enjoyed the ways in which it was different what did you guys think of the Rougarou? I wanted more Rougarou. Yeah. In one of those interesting things that happen sometimes, I had only heard of the Rougarou at that Tales at Night library story time for adults, where someone had read a story about a Rougarou. That was the first time I ever heard about it. And then I read Louise Erdrich's The Sentence, which features a Rougarou. And then, well, it doesn't feature. It's a, it's a part of the story. And now this. So this character keeps popping up for me. But yeah, I, I want more Rougarou. And I, I really think she's, she's set this up for a sequel. So maybe we will get more. Yeah. I could imagine it going into a trilogy or something for sure. if, if she wanted it to. Especially if she was never intending to write a sequel to the Marrow Thieves, and <laughs> felt that her, her arms twisted for that. I, yeah, this the, this book totally is set up. We can talk about the. I think you used a very sort of generous term, Toby, that it was uh, open ended. I was going to say it was a bit of a rip, a royal rip. But we can talk about the ending in a little bit. But back to the Rougarou. Yeah, same same as me. I had never heard the term before. We were getting ready to the tales at night and. The, uh, the collection was called Stories of the Road Allowance People by Maria Campbell. And there are a lot of Métis legends and stories, and it's they're written in sort of the dialect mischief. And so it's the relevant written phonetically. So then and I didn't encounter the Ruguru again until this book. And I really liked how it was tied to a bigger sort of idea of mythology and how there was that Mr. Is it Heiser, the, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. the, the guy whose ancestors came from 
Germany, the, you know, the old, the old world, and they had werewolves there, and and it, it, that whole concept of it appearing in different cultures based on on the culture it's in reminded me quite a bit of Neil Gaiman's American Gods, mm-hmm. the idea where you have sort of like the old gods of Europe and Greece, and then the new gods, and how the power of gods uh, will move depending on where the the center of power is. And so I thought that was a very interesting idea with the Rougarou as well. Which raises a question that I wanted to ask you guys. When I was reading this, for whatever reason, even though she laid out kind of the way she set up the Rougarou, she described the Rougarou as a figure like in a mysterious kind of vague way. But she also described some rules for it, like who the Rougarou preys on and why. Like, you know, you've you've betrayed someone, you've uh, caused some harm, something like that. And then Heiser enters the picture in the story, and uh, Jonah's convinced that he's a Rougarou. And I was convinced, too, even though, as you get into Heiser's backstory, he doesn't really fit. And it's only later in the novel where he basically states flat out, he's a a wolf signa. He's something entirely different. And I was surprised. I got fooled by that, even though... She didn't do anything deceptive in the writing. Just my expectations kind of carried me to think that he was a Rougarou as well. Did you guys have that same experience or did you realize that wasn't it? Well, I think she wants you to think he's a Rougarou. Traditionally, you become a Rougarou by doing something bad. But we have Zeus becoming a Rougarou at the end. So, I mean, it seems like anyone can become a Rougarou. Yeah, I mean, the rules for being a Rougarou seemed like that would produce a lot of Rougarous. Totally. Because um, yeah. it, it seemed like they were saying Zeus basically because he said he hated his mom and because he did, like he, he really did hate her in that moment, that that was the thing that opened him up to that. Well, I guess I should be a Rougarou. <laughs> well, see, there's the thing. It would affect a lot of people. So it's, it's this, and then do you have to be out on the road alone? Because that's the other thing. Zeus was out on the road because he was, you know, going out to find Joan. Mm-hmm. So he was then in a vulnerable place after having done a bad thing. Yeah. I feel like those two things have to happen in, like, uh, close together. You have to do the bad thing, and then you are vulnerable. You're open to whatever spirits turn you. At least in the mythology, I think, that she was trying to get across, but it wasn't super clear. Yeah, the yeah. vagueness is, is kind of leaves some stuff open, which is also one of the reasons why I still thought Heiser was a uh, Rougarou up until the reveal. And I thought it was interesting, too, how the, like the idea of the Rougarou was treated generally almost like a boogeyman to keep you know, kids from going too far out of the community or for, for your, you know, the girls who getting into trouble or this kind of thing. But then at the same time, there was an actual hairy monster out there that was real. And so to sort of reconcile those two ideas that it's a made up thing that parents tell their kids to keep them in line versus it actually was there. That's why that Ajan character was so interesting because she had the old medicine still and she could also remember a time when like she always believed in it. Like it was never a question and, mm-hmm. and was, you know, it was, was a little bit like uh, Alfred, the Batman, I thought where she would, she, you know, she was able to outfit Joan with the stuff that she needed mm-hmm. uh, when she needed it. And uh, was kind of conveniently available to her in between her, her adventures, if you want to call them out, out in the wild. But yeah, that ending, oh my God, talking about the ending, that was open-ended. I feel like I was cheated with that ending. Yeah, really? Uh, well, I, I, see, the thing is, uh, maybe maybe that's just me, but I, a story like this, I, I feel like there has to be sort of um, 
like a resolution or a catharsis or something, uh, which you get with Victor returning. I was happy. But then to just kind of like turn the knife one last time with Zeus, I think it's a little bit why, like, like, sure, I enjoy horror movies, but I couldn't really stick with The Walking Dead because it was like a TV series that would just go on and on and on. Same thing like with uh, like gangster movies, like Goodfellas is one of my favorite movies of all time. But I could never get into The Sopranos because mm. I think I like my horror to have a beginning, middle, and end. And Well, I, I have to take the opportunity here to point out that Stephen King would sometimes do things like that in his books too. Uh, I'm thinking of The Stand where in the, un- the complete version anyway, Randall Flagg wakes up on an island right at the end. And you know that the cycle is going to start again. That's true. I didn't like that either. Even though I love Stephen <laughs> King, of course. But, but yeah. So the ending, you guys seem to be okay with it in terms of just storytelling. I didn't have a problem with it particularly. I thought it kind of fit in, again, kind of illustrating the risk of the Rougarou in the neighborhood or in the community. Yeah, no, I, I was okay with it. I immediately went online afterwards to see if this was actually officially book one of a series. And it was frustrating to find out there was no clear answer to that like you said she has a, a four book deal but it's unclear because the first book is going to be a sequel to marrow thieves so yeah it's begging to be continued i feel like I, I feel like you just can't leave leave us hanging there sort of my impression i like the ending i like the openness of it like it makes me continue to think about the book once it's done like if everything wraps up neatly i'm like okay the, that was okay yeah done move on to the next but now i like I'm, I am curious. Like, what happened to Zeus, and where is that story going to go? And maybe we'll find out, but maybe we won't. Yeah. So not finding out that bugs me. <laughs> well, it means you'll have to get the next book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have to make a small confession too. When I had read the book description last month, as uh, you know, the what we were reading for this month, and it said uh, a gene, the, a euchre shark. In my head, I actually imagined a shark. <laughs> I did not realize they meant euchre the card game, and it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I took that description too from another place, and I thought I thought there would be more euchre in it. Not a lot of euchre. No, like I would no. not if if I had to describe that character, euchre wouldn't be one of the things that define her. Defines her. I know there's that scene where the, the she and the old lady are sitting around when 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 Joe's thirteen, and she's like, I don't want to sit around and play these card games. I want to go out and that surfers experience with it with a rougarou possibly we don't know right she sees that thing on the road i'm assuming that's what it was but yeah i thought i was expecting more euchre i did enjoy the uh, side characters in this one um <laughs> even though most of the focus was on joan and victor and the uh crew at the uh mobile church thing the revival yeah the revival yeah mm-hmm. that was an interesting aspect too like there were these little side bits that weren't necessarily essential to the story but the way the revival group was there is kind of a way to clear away concerns about development in indigenous communities i i found that fascinating just as a little like as a it was a bit of color a bit of um background information that wasn't essential to anything else but also it was a very interesting idea makes me wonder if that does happen like that if that's like a reflection of actual experience yeah, well, in my research on Demoline, um, I found out that she, the story came to her uh, when she was on a plane and read an article in The Walrus about how U.S. evangelicals are actively converting indigenous Canadians. And, like, the message of these sermons is, like, you know, you're experiencing poverty and racism and abuse, not not because of colonization, but because, you know, of these false gods and come and worship the right gods and things will be better. Mm-hmm. So it it didn't 
come from the Ruguru part. It came from the, the religion part. Yeah. That yeah. part I was kind of aware of. I, I thought of the, you know, the way that they described it as essentially a business strategy because Heiser was also a consultant whose mm-hmm. job it was to get agreement from local communities. And I thought that was a very creative element to the story there, that that was a strategy that he was using. Using yeah. his supernatural powers to uh, have a Ruguru be a, a, a reverend that uh, was very charismatic. It was like, uh, again, one of those things that just, it was different than other things that I read and I th- found it fascinating. Yeah, and like Heiser like, represented the ultimate outsider, really. Like his family comes from Europe and, and to him, yeah, I saw him almost like, like this mercenary type character who, who would uh, sell his services to the highest bidder. And if it was the pipeline companies, then he, then he almost like would use his powers almost to his own amusement. Like, yes, I'll get paid, I'll get this job done, but wouldn't it be fun if we made the Reverend a Rougarou because I have that power? But they didn't, he didn't make the Reverend a Rougarou. No, he just Victor found him. Victor became a Rougarou because of the land. He wanted to sell the land. Well, okay, that's true. But yeah, yeah he, but he used his, what did you call it? Uh, wolf senior, yeah. senior powers to create the situation that is, is ultimately only beneficial to Heiser in the end. Heiser was very, really like the twirly mustache oh. villain guy. Yeah, you know? absolutely. I imagine in a movie version, he would have been someone with one of those like cold, uh, steady voices, you know, the, the calm, calculating type that uh, you're intimidated by even when he's not speaking loudly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just because he seems so sure of himself. He was almost cartoonish. Yeah. Totally. You know, yeah. You know, yeah. The way he was kind of portrayed is. I also enjoyed the dynamics between the church members and the. <laughs> What's her name? The one that... Uh, Cecile? Cecile, yeah, who wanted to seduce the reverend, and then that all just went way off the rails. Yeah. Which, to Joan's benefit, mm-hmm. uh, fortunately, because otherwise she would have had an extremely difficult time getting to Victor. But that's one of those chaotic things that I enjoyed in the book, which reminds me a little bit of Stephen King sometimes, where he would toss in something completely arbitrary yeah. to just throw a spanner in the works, as they say. Totally. Like, I thought that whole confrontation at the <laughs> that uh, park, whatever, retreat area, that it was almost just like, I, I felt like the author was just like, you know, I'm just going to throw a bunch of gasoline on this situation and see what happens, <laughs> because literally, literally the whole place, you know, just bursts into flame, and it must have been... Or I would imagine writing that whole sequence must have been incredibly fun because you've, you've developed all of these characters and then you almost just almost like an experiment. Like what would happen if we put them all in the same place and just basically set the place on fire? What yeah. would happen? And it, that part, again, was just like so fast paced. I just couldn't it was stop reading. As soon as the fire started, I had to just see it through to the end. <laughs> Another thing I found interesting was the passages with Victor stuck in his own mind. I found those kind of annoying. Now, I expected to. Okay. Because, like, in when we were reading Eden Robinson, she had those little segments, those small passages that were uh, the trickster talking. Uh, although it wasn't clear in the beginning that it was the trickster. And, and when these showed up and there were these very short chapters, I thought, oh, is this going to be another one of those little aside things that I'm not going to like? But somehow they maintained their interest to me. And uh, the idea of him kind of doing battle in his own head for his own soul, I thought it went off reasonably well, especially since it was kind of clear, like he didn't have a chance. It was hopeless and uh, he, he was going to be consumed. And then Joan came at just the right time. Like if she had come any later, it would have been too late. Like That was well done. Nice suspense, you know, nice 
tension in the, in the moments like between the two worlds like when he he remembered her name finally mm-hmm. or or she said something that kind of echoed in his in his dreamlike state or even the green chair appearing in both places and outside the revival tent and in his little 26 uh, acres of of his of his prison or whatever it was but uh yeah, Victor just seems just to me kind of just kind of useless during those parts, which I guess he was. I mean, he was he, oh, he was, was a prisoner. Trapped. He was literally a prisoner of his mm-hmm. own yep. uh, mind, or in the held sway by the the powers of the Ruguru or the or the the Heiser. Yeah. Well, in the traditional storytelling sense, he was the captured princess, and uh, yeah. the brave knight Joan was uh, off to rescue him. Totally. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, there wasn't much he could do. Although he did right at the right moment, you know, he managed to pull himself out and uh, rescue in the car him. in the back seat there. Yeah. 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 So it's still like it worked out there, <laughs> and that final confrontation with the like when Robe was there afterwards and it's like oh crap now there's a Ruguru right in front of us but they weren't his intended victims so he just took off you know it's <laughs> there there were a lot of those reverses and mm-hmm. uh like is this going to happen now no it didn't happen oh no but this did happen it was a lot of uncertainty that kept me going here yeah i felt i felt like her world building was a lot clearer to follow than say Eden Robinson and i loved Eden Robinson's books but there were a lot of times where i was just like like I couldn't figure out exactly what was going on in the moment. There's so much sort of chaos, uh, especially like in the giant like battles and fight scenes and things. But in this, I, I always had a very strong sense of place when I was reading. I, I, I could visualize things very well. Now, I don't know if, if she's had opportunities to write for, for TV or for film or whatever. I never felt lost in just the general, like, where are we going with this? Which I, I kind of appreciated, even when with Victor in his, in his fort. So, okay, no, we're here, and, and he's, he's working through his stuff. I find, too, like, we're comparing her with Eden Robinson a lot because it's, you know, an indigenous story and a mythological story. But uh, I think you're right. Like, Eden Robinson's writing was very dense with lots of stuff packed in. And uh, Sherry Demolines is more spare, more more personal in a lot of ways because it's like it's a small town thing. Like you're out on the roads a lot. You know, it's it's like going out to uh, the cottage or a northern community or something. It, it's smaller and personal and also more isolated. So you're vulnerable that way. But it's also, I don't know, it feels like it's on a scale that you can imagine yourself being in. With horror, there's you know some horror that's like that, where it's just a small group of people or even an individual in an isolated circumstance versus like horror that happens on a bigger scale. And this is one of those more personal kind of stories, um, which worked well, I thought. Any other directions we want to talk about or go through, or did we kind of cover everything? I kind of want to talk about the horniness of this book. Oh, yeah. Then lead on with the horniness. <laughs> I mean, did, was I the only one who noticed? Oh, no, no. I, I, you know, when they're talking about their relationship and how much she's uh, in love with Victor, it was very apparent that his physicality was an essential part of that attraction and that, and that love and romance. I was wondering if it was a way for her to distance herself from the YA that she's so well known for, hmm. or if it was just part of Joan. I mean, it does give her this sort of autonomy and this um, 
what's the word I'm looking for? Joan is very, like, she's a really strong female protagonist, and we don't often see that in Indigenous literature. You know, I think in the really popular Canadian Indigenous titles, you know, you think of, like, The Break or April Rain Tree or um, Five Little Indians. Like, it's about people who have survived all sorts of terrible traumas. And there's, I mean, we get that in the background, but that's not what this is about and that's not what Joan is about and I appreciated that particularly about this book and I think maybe her sexuality is part of her just strong character you're we didn't really talk as much about that but she is a very strong character like she just like he's off there somewhere I am just gonna go there I don't have a solid plan or anything but I'm gonna go and confront and I'm going to be direct and like an action hero like you know she yeah and, and speaking about her like Joan's uh, sexuality or sensuality uh, one of the, the scenes that really I feel stands out to me it was when she goes to that that bar and she encounters that dude with the cowboy hat <laughs> uh, and just the sort of the back and forth like the the flirting and and the way it's it's sort of written and you're you're just not you're just you can you can just feel the tension growing growing and then that amazing payoff when she slugs him in the face <laughs> and I just was like this is really good writing like I was along every for every line of that and uh yeah, because she was totally justified in her thinking at that point. Like, well, if he's cheating, why why can't I? I can do this. Like, you know, but then in the end, she decided, no, I can't. And then, of course, the guy turned out to be a massive uh, you know. D-bag. Yeah. Can we say D-bag on here? Yeah, totally. Yeah. D-bag. And her response was immediate and direct and, you know, again, fully justified. Like, she did everything possible that she could do as well as she could. She was the smart character in a horror mystery, you know, or a horror novel. Didn't make too... I mean, she was a little rushing into things sometimes without a really solid plan, but she didn't make a lot of mistakes. In classic horror, isn't there, you know, the the sexy lady trope and she gets, like, brutally killed? And All the time. Yeah, yeah. here the sexy lady is, is the hero. Yeah. But then you uh, also usually have the smart lady who is the final girl trope, mm. who is able to survive to the end and confront the monster. So she's she's got it all, yeah. She's got it all. She doesn't need anyone else. I kind of feel like Victor was the final girl, though, because at the end, he's the one who comes out of that state and manages to, uh, was it Heiser he attacked or Robe? Uh, one of them, though, and managed to get the car off the road. And, yeah. you know, so it inverts some of the tropes that we're used to, I think. Yeah, uh, Sherry definitely doesn't shy away from talking about the sexy parts, uh, especially between Joan and Victor. And I, I liked how it was sort of contrasted by the, the scenes when, when, when Victor was the Reverend Wolf and he's just kind of laid out there almost comatose in the woods. And then uh, what's, what's her name? Um, Cecile. Cecile, you know, tr- you know, climbs on top of him and just like no reaction. Like he's just like he's like a, a corpse or something. Mm. And I guess, like, we have no history of, like, we don't see Joan and Victor together, so we rely on these flashbacks to fill in the relationship, and we can see it was it was passionate and full of love. And There's a lot of sex. Lots of sex. In their relationship, especially when they're going on road trips and they'd be visiting mm-hmm. different places, and it wasn't before too long before mm-hmm. sex was happening. I mean, the woman did write pornography, Dimmeline. I think that was... That, 
when I discovered that, I kind of, I was like, oh, okay, maybe. Yeah. I don't think she overdid it with the steaminess, though, because, like, I saw all of the writing, but I didn't feel like it was going a lot in that direction. Just enough to, like, establish that this is a part of her and and their relationship. And, like, she's a real person and these are, you know, that's how real people feel about certain things, right? As opposed to a flatter kind of character that you might see in some books. But I didn't feel like it went too far over. Well, and this is how sort of my uh, my mind works. One of the scenes where she's describing a flashback of one of her road trips with Victor, and it's steamy, and they're having sex. But the only thing I'm thinking about is, did Tim Burton really film a movie in Alabama? And, <laughs> and, and is the set still there? You can visit it on this island. I meant to look that up. I never, I never did. When the goats came out, I feel like you could totally though rewrite this just a little bit to make it more of a romance and like and that she could carry that off just as easily like a more romancy and it'd be the danger in the background a little more mm. instead of up front oh i'm sure werewolf romance is a whole whole big genre yeah yeah, yeah. you say that toby like as if you don't already know <laughs> i i don't i just assume <laughs> but <laughs> uh, sure I'm, I'm hoping i'm hoping i once looked it up and there are steampunk vampire romances mm-hmm. so i'm they're all covered. Yeah, really something for everyone. <laughs> well, should we wrap it up and move on to our next section? Uh, do you have any general comments? I'm just going to say uh, I found it a, a good read and really enjoyable. And uh, I haven't read The Marrow Thieves yet, but I'm probably going to go and find that one and read it soon, too, because I just thought her writing was really good and I enjoyed it. My final thoughts is it was much more of a straight-ahead horror novel than I was expecting, but also filled with lovely... It's weird to say lovely images, but uh, moments throughout the book that kind of really uh, stuck with me and and I took time to enjoy. Well, with uh, all of that said, uh, we can move on to our next segment. Can you tell me a book I would also like? So I've read three books by Cherie Dimaline, and um, my favorite book of hers is her breakout YA hit, The Marrow Thieves. So this is a post-apocalyptic dystopian book in the vein of like The Hunger Games and Divergence, all those books that were really popular maybe like 10, 15 years ago. And it's set in a future world where there's this sort of plague in which people can no longer dream. And this inability to dream leads to madness. And it's discovered that indigenous people can still dream. And the reason for this is thought to be in their marrow. So groups of indigenous people roam, hunted by recruiters who will bring them to these institutions where their marrow is harvested and they're killed. So there's the obvious parallel here between the residential school system but putting that aside, it's just a really, it's a really exciting book. It's an interesting take on that YA trend, but with that like indigenous lens. And um, once you've read it, you can read the sequel, uh, which is now out, came out last year, Hunting by Stars, which I don't think is quite as good as The Marrow Thieves. But if you get really invested in The Marrow Thieves, you might want to read that one too. Mm-hmm. Well, for my pick this month, I doubled down on the uh, Rougarou werewolf theme. And so I've picked Cycle of the Werewolf by Stephen King. This is a very small book. Often I I would call this a gateway Stephen King book if no one's read Stephen King and they want to just get a sense of it because it's hardly over 100 pages long. And the reason for that, it was never supposed to really be a, a book to begin with. It was supposed to be a calendar. And Bernie Reiston, who uh, is the illustrator, did a, a calendar for each month of the year, which is, I guess, how calendars work, involving a werewolves. And Stephen King was hired to write sort of a very short little, almost a vignette 
based on each picture. And as he was writing, he realized he would need more than the little vignette space on each month of the calendar to, to actually make it worthwhile. So it, he expanded it from his vignettes to actual short little stories. So each story... It begins in January and goes through to December. So each month has its own little mini story within it. But as you go along throughout the year, the stories sort of, some of them kind of join up and and you get to sort of see a through line about a werewolf that plagues this small town in Maine and the young man who figures out who the werewolf is and what he does about it. So uh, Cycle of the Werewolf by Stephen King. So I'm going to swerve and uh, not recommend a book again. And instead, this time, I'm going to recommend a webcomic called The Order of the Stick by Rich Burlew. This will seem like an odd choice because it is a stick figure fantasy comic set in like a Dungeons and Dragons universe. And it started out kind of lighthearted and frivolous, I guess, as kind of a daily strip. But then as it developed over the years, and this has been running for over 10 years now, it has a, a rich complicated backstory and character arcs and story arcs that intertwine. The reason that I selected it, one of the things I liked about this book was the way Victor was uh, trapped in his mind and then confronting the Rougarou there and kind of battling for his soul. Uh, There's a storyline in Order of the Stick where one of the characters is bitten by a vampire. As the story develops a bit, you find that his, his soul is trapped in his body with the vampire soul. And the vampire soul has complete dominance in that area and is able to extract information from him. But at the same time, he's struggling to prevent the vampire from harming his friends. And it takes a while to develop. It's a really, really well done storyline. And it just reminded me of that section from uh, this book as well. So uh, Order of the Stick by Rich Burlew. It's quite a long one. It is not complete. He has been working on it over a decade, uh, but we it is approaching like the final fifth of the story, it looks like. So uh, I would encourage you to read it if you like webcomics and fantasy and good storytelling. So now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds, where in our panelists talk about a word or phrase that's been on our minds lately. Uh, picking up from your comment of good storytelling, my word came out of the whole idea of Empire of Wild being based on stories and the old stories and where do stories come from. So the story takes place in Georgian Bay area. So if you go a little further east from Georgian Bay, you'll come to an area called uh, the Thousand Islands, which is between, I want to say, Tr- Toronto and Montreal and just uh, north of New York State. And uh, so my word this month is Thousand Island dressing. Where did, the, where, did the term, where did the term come from? Now, we've all we all know what Thousand Island dressing is. I'm sure I don't have to describe it, but it's the most basic. I think it's probably ketchup and mayonnaise mixed together with uh, probably, you know, relish and all bunch of stuff like like there are a, a bajillion no different relish in it. <laughs> there is a- I'd be Speaking very of monsters, who's putting a relish in this? Let me just say that there are a bajillion recipes out there, but you know, everyone. I don't need to describe Thousand Island dressing what it is, but you may be interested to find out the origin of it. So the prevailing theory of it, it started with this man called George Bolt. Now George Bolt was an eccentric weirdo, and I think the Thousand Island area attracted a lot of eccentric weirdos because uh, it was close proximity to Toronto, Montreal, and New York City, and so it was a place where a lot of rich weirdos would go and build their summer homes. And so this guy, 
George Bolt. He was the proprietor of the uh, Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City. And the story goes that one day, I guess, he was on his yacht, because, you know, eccentric uh, weirdos have yachts, and his chef forgot to bring salad dressing. And so the, so the chef just kind of mixed this thing up on, on board, and it was a hit. So he brought it back to New York City and instructed his maitre d' at the hotel to start offering it on the menu, and history was made. Now, that's the prevailing story, but what's interesting is in 2010, a sociology professor from the University of Wisconsin, Michael Bell, he set out to discover the true origin of Thousand Island dressing, which sounds like a great job. So he and his graduate students went and interviewed dozens of people in the Thousand Islands, which, fun fact, are actually more than a thousand islands in the Thousand Islands, but it's called the Thousand Islands because there are a bunch of islands in the St. Lawrence River. And as many islands as there are, there were many different, as many different stories as to the origin of Thousand Island dressing. And some of them corresponded with the story of George Bolt and the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. Others would talk about a type of salad dressing that was very unlike today's Thousand Island. It was much more of like a vinaigrette, but that uh, the name was then sold to George Bolt, and he used it for the salad dressing we know and love. So anyway, Thousand Island dressing is my word. And no one really knows exactly where it's come from, but we all know where to find it. <laughs> I, I stand corrected. I looked up two quick recipes, and they both have relish in them. And I don't like relish, but I like Thousand Island dressing. So, Well, you're, um, you're forgiven for making that mistake, mm-hmm. Toby, because uh, there are some Thousand Island uh, recipes that do not have relish. Mm. And I have to say, it was kind of delightful to watch Trevor telling his thing and watch Toby quickly pulling out her phone <laughs> and trying to figure out if there was actually relish in it well, or not. Well, interestingly, the Wikipedia entry for Thousand Island dressing does not include relish, but the two recipes that I pulled up did include relish, so... And you looked up multiple sources. Well, this is so beautiful. <laughs> I'm a librarian. I, this yes. is like being fact-checked in real time. There's <laughs> yes. no editing involved in this section of the uh, podcast. <laughs> um, I'm going to take this way in the other direction, and my word is brimstone, as in mm. fire and... So that's a biblical expression that refers to God's wrath. And brimstone is not actually a stone. It's an archaic term that means sulfur and is meant to evoke that rotten egg smell given off by lightning, which I guess is a thing, but I've never gotten close enough to lightning to smell. And I guess in a lot of ancient religions before science, uh, lightning was thought to be divine punishment. So you get this association of the smell of sulfur with divine retribution. So hence, fire and brimstone. Definitely wouldn't want to smell brimstone while you were having something with Thousand Islands dressing. Oh, no. So my word for this month is nomenclature. It was on my mind because there's a lovely song by the CD Seeds called Nomenclature, and it just flows into my head sometimes when I'm not thinking of other things. It is often used to describe a system for assigning names, especially in science, or an existing system of names, or the act of giving something a name. The book this month uh, just inspired that thought a bit, too, because, again, with Heiser, the character, I remember thinking that he was the Arugaru for most of the story. And then it turns out he wasn't, and he had a different name. And the name affects how you think about him and his interplay with the other characters. Humans are pattern-seeking creatures, storytelling creatures, and a big part of a story is naming things. All of our creation myths that I'm aware of all involve the giving of names, from Adam and Eve and giving names to the animals to 
I don't know very many other creation myths, to be honest, in any detail, but well, they all involve naming I'm surprised Toby isn't going to phone to call up a few more creation myths. <laughs> it doesn't put a fire under me, but like uh, Thousand Island Dressing does. Yeah, so nomenclature. Uh, and I did not take the time to write down the actual origin of the word, but uh, there's a word in Latin that's very close to that, nomenclature, or something like that, which literally just meant a list of names. And that's where we derive it from. So, nomenclature. So, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this month. Thank you so much for joining us, dear readers. For next month, we're going to read and discuss Billy Summers by Stephen King. Billy Summers is a man in a room with a gun. He's a killer for hire and the best in the business, but he'll do the job only if the target is a truly bad guy. And now Billy wants out. But first, there is one last hit. Billy is among the best snipers in the world, a decorated Iraq war vet, a Houdini when it comes to vanishing after the job is done. So what could possibly go wrong? How about everything? Have comments or book suggestions for us? Send us an email. You can find all our contact info at the bottom of the page at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. You can also find all our past episodes there, too. If you haven't already, subscribe to Time to Read on your favorite podcasting service and maybe leave us a review. Tell your book-loving friends about us, too. And until next time, make sure you find Time Time to Read. research i found kind of an interesting side point which it wasn't really relevant but i thought you might find this interesting that the uh the origins of the waldorf astoria hotel uh it used to be two hotels the waldorf which was built by william astor and then the astoria hotel built by his cousin john jacob astor and they were side by side and the two cousins hated each other and so they built these hotels to try to outdo each other and it was actually george bolt of uh, Thousand Island fame, who worked as the matri or not the matri d, but as the, um, the he managed the one hotel, and he was able to be the mediator between these two cousins, and eventually uh, got them to agree to amalgamate and make it one hotel, hmm. uh, which was the Waldorf Astoria, which doesn't exist anymore because it was torn down to make way for the Empire State Building. And so the new Waldorf Astoria, which ex- exists, is, was built in a different part of uh, Manhattan. Does so. the Waldorf salad fit somewhere in there? Yes. Yeah. It's also from the uh, Waldorf um, Hotel. So. But it doesn't use Thousand Islands dressing, does it? No, it's more of a... It's like a um, ranch? Yeah, like a, I was going to say like um, almost like a whipped cream or something. Mm. It's very different. It's a creamy dressing, though. It's a creamy dressing, yeah. Did you know that Hidden Valley Ranch actually started at a place called Hidden Valley, Alaska? I did not know. Yeah. And they were the ones that supposedly are given credit for inventing it. Hmm. Maybe we should do a podcast about salad dressings. <laughs> so Cherie Dimeline, she was born July 2nd, 1975. Should I pause? Uh, let's wait a moment. Yeah. Okay. Here's what a rougarou is, kind of. And it was in vague... Just wait a minute.
I know drills are important. I know the work they're doing is important. I still hate the sound. This is a lot of drilling. Like it's there. It's mm-hmm. usually not this much. You can never predict it. Yeah. Sometimes it goes stretches with nothing, and then boom, it's like that. Ironically, the one minute where there wasn't drilling, I was just talking garbage talk. It wasn't <laughs> like I mean, our one clear, clear moment there, which we could have capitalized, I squandered. No worries. Hmm. Right on time. <laughs> <laughs>